Big Shot Gangster putting together a crew. We gathered Han Solo, Chewbacca, Kira, Lando, and Tobias Beckett for the ultimate Star Wars adventure. Our question today, is Solo actually a heist movie? Welcome to Sky Talkers. Here are your hosts, Charlotte and Caitlin. Hello, and welcome to Sky Talkers. I'm your host, Charlotte. Hey, everyone. I'm your other host, Caitlin, and welcome to our solo discussion. <laughs> so random. It's so but, random. like, it's so right. <laughs> Charlotte put, saying uh, Big Talk Gangster putting together a crew really took me back. <laughs> We're it's a it's 2018 again. We're God, hyped I about wish. the last Jedi. <laughs> I know, right? We're hyped. We're talking it all out. We're really discovering Raylo. Like, there's so much that's uh, happening. It's 2018. The first, the, fir- <laughs> the first six months of 2018 were honestly God tier of our fandom. <laughs> Best six months of my entire life. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I was kidding. <laughs> Raylo is is king. The the podcast we're doing new things with the podcast. We've got like a year under our belts. Like we're feeling good about that. We get to go to the solo premiere. Like we are firing on all cylinders. Every single cylinder is firing. It's, yeah, we could have we could have made the castle run in like ten parsecs. Honestly, maybe two. Yeah, <laughs> who knows? Yeah, honestly, we would have beat Han Solo. That's that's really what matters. Okay, so the yeah. real reason why we're doing this show is because this idea came to me from New work, dream. actually, in a dream. Um, I wish. I wish, like, <laughs> podcast ideas came to me and I would wake up and be like, we must do this. But no, a friend actually shared this with me at work when we were working on a project, and I thought it was so cool that I – it will discuss it, but it's really this idea of looking at heists through data. And it sounds really boring. I promise it's not. It's not going to be boring. It's super interesting. And we're going to really break down Solo as a narrative, as a script, as a story. And this is kind of like seems so random, but I've been really excited about this for like, I don't know, three months. Long <laughs> and, time. Yeah, a long time. And we've been wanting to do this. So I'm really, really excited to do it. So I hope that you kind of take a chance on this episode that's kind of weird for us, not normal for us. And it's even only going to be two parts rather than three. Everything about this episode is out of our comfort zone. And I'm really excited about it. It's almost Charlotte's been looking forward to this episode so much that it's almost to the point where I'm like, should I just like leave you in this episode alone? Should I even be here? (laughs) (laughs) Just let you go for it. (laughs) But uh, yeah, it's uh, I'm just kidding. But it it, Charlotte has been really excited about this episode. I am too. But this is this has been Charlotte's baby, and it's going to be a good discussion. It was fun to revisit Solo. Um, Solo was the first. Star Wars movie I watched post trials <laughs> mm-hmm. and it was it, you know it gets better <laughs> it does it, it honestly does. does it does and that's the thing that's the weird thing about Solo is that I just have such a weird relationship with it but now it just seems like yeah that's that's that Star Wars movie that I like a lot more than other Star Wars movies <laughs> <laughs> yeah but there have always been really good parts of Solo that I've really enjoyed for me the the pieces of solo have been better than the whole and i think that's kind of what makes it a strange film to analyze so i think it's going to be a really interesting discussion 
going through because what we're why don't you intro the article the the study that this is really based on charlotte because i think that will kind of set people up for how our discussion is going to go Right. So this blog, this blogger, his name is Charles Kunkin. I think that's how you say his last name. I could be completely wrong and totally butchering it, but it's K-U-N-K-E-N is the last name. And for the past like six months, uh, he has exhaustively diagrammed heist films from Ocean's Eleven to Heat to um, Logan Lucky uh, movies, even the the Great Muppet heist, something like that. I've never seen that, but I still thought it was great that it was included. I'll have all the links in our sources in the description. But basically, he his 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 blog was really about what makes a good heist movie, and can things like what is the best heist movie. And for him, the best heist movie that checks all of the conventions of a good heist movie is the 2001 remake of Ocean's Eleven. And I have to agree with him because I think that every convention that he's laid out makes perfect sense to me about what makes a good heist movie and whether or not they have X sequence doesn't necessarily mean that it's a bad movie, but is it the perfect heist movie? And the idea of what makes a perfect heist movie is so interesting to me and breaking it down from story to convention to, um, to trope it's so fascinating so it's it's it was a really cool blog series and i had i was just kind of dying to apply it to solo because it feels like solo could potentially be a heist movie and just by going through different story beats and everything i'm really excited to do that here solo wasn't included in his blog post so that's why i feel like it's a good place to do it here we're going to be bringing in other sources um about heist for the past three months since I heard about this. I've ordered a couple books on heist. Like I've watched a couple. Caitlin and I watched Ocean's Eleven again since Charles thinks it is the best heist movie. Um and in a lot of ways, I again I agree. Um and seeing what Steven Soderbergh did with that movie, uh it makes you really think about like what makes a successful fun movie. And because at the end of the day, heist movies are super fun. And I think Solo checks a lot of those boxes, perhaps not all, and we are going to go through them all. Yeah, I think it's it's really fun. This this uh, episode kind of reminded me of our Yoda series when it was something that I wasn't as familiar with and then getting to like dive into it a lot more than I've ever done before just gave me like a whole new appreciation for like the character Yoda. I kind of feel that way about both Solo and then also heist films in general. On Skytalkers, we talk a lot about like storytelling tropes and mythology and um, we talk a lot about like romantic tropes and things like that, you know, with our discussions of like Raylo. Um, but heist films is not something that's not a genre I would say that I was super familiar with. I didn't grow up watching a lot of heist films. And I certainly that's not like story structure that I think is much about. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. It's not something that I would really say that I have any kind of expertise in or even a lot of knowledge. in. and so being able to like and, like, there's something about a really great, like, graph or, like, data-driven <laughs> analysis that just really gets the gears going, you know? Yeah, it's also, like, super on brand for us to like this kind of stuff. This is the yeah. same. We're, we're the podcast that has taken furious notes during every Star Wars movie at, like, the second or third time we've seen it. It's just 
stuff like this really is so fascinating to me is, is to stack it all next to each other um, in terms of tropes and everything. And I'm so with you. Like, I, I think that we often think a lot about romantic tropes, but I honestly think that heists and fun action is just as important in Star Wars. And in fact, I wouldn't say more important, but just as weighted as certain character, you know, interpersonal relationships that we love to study. And it's just as important, I think, to study these certain aspects of film and filmmaking and story, storytelling and writing. Yeah, absolutely. It's kind of like the the idea of like pop culture in general that – you know, like a lot of our readings of Star Wars, we tend to like make things very deep. And the great thing about Star Wars is that it can be this like really fun action adventure or you can like can, you can take it as far as you want, really, as far as looking at the symbols and stuff like that and the mythology behind it and like storytelling across generations and, you know, the hero with a thousand faces and then like looking at George Lucas's career. Like you can take it in whatever direction you want. And I think that this direction that we're looking at today is not the direction that we tend to focus on as much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's why I think it's going to be a really fun discussion. And I love the idea that because of like how um, some I think Solo has some of the best action sequences in Star Wars. And so like being able to look at these pieces that Charles has laid out. He's laid out 16 different kind of um, items that he's checked off in his charts. And so being able to like look at the sequences that Solo checks off, the ones that it doesn't, come to this conclusion about what it does well and what it doesn't through the lens of a heist movie, I think is going to be really interesting. So I'm excited to talk about it. Definitely. So why don't we dive in? In part one, we're going to be talking about our impressions and the genre of Solo. And then in part two, we're going to be going through Charles Kuhnken's Anatomy of a Heist and discuss the question, is Solo a heist film? So without further ado, let's get started. So who talks first? You talk first? I talk first? Okay, so welcome to part one, where we're going to be talking about Solo and impressions and genre of it. So we're coming up on two years of Solo. I can't believe that. I really can't either. (laughs) In a matter of weeks. (laughs) And yeah, how has your opinion of the film changed? Has it changed at all? I've always liked Solo. It's no Mm -hmm. secret. I I walked out of it being like, I can't believe what I just saw, which is always a great feeling with Star Wars. Knowing some sequences I didn't really love, um, the Val sequence specifically, how they handled L3. L3 is one of my favorite characters. I reference her all the time on the show. And I feel like I have always really liked Solo. And I'm going to say something really controversial. And people are going to come at me. I like Solo more than Rogue One. And I watch Solo way more right now, way more than any other Star Wars movie. (laughs) so crazy it's so weird because it's not like i i feel like solo as we begin who knows how long this recording is going to be but as we begin a deep dive into solo it's not a movie that i draw on for myth which is like my favorite part of star wars but it is a really fun movie to put on and just kind of watch where it goes Mm -hmm. i really love alden i really love amelia clark so i don't know i really love solo guys (laughs) Solo has definitely aged a lot better for me. I think with most things with Star Wars, time gives you a lot of perspective on things. And I think that like the subtext of all of this is Tross, of course. But I think that 
my opinions would have gone in this direction even without Tross, honestly, because there are a lot of things that I really, really love about Solo. I don't know if I think that Solo is better than Rogue One. They're like so different. It's hard to make that comparison. But you're right. Mm. Solo Solo was the best first movie <laughs> Star Wars movie for 2020 for me. Mm-hmm. It, it was so good. Like the the charm of that film is really evident in a lot of different places. I think Alden is great. Yeah, all the things that you love about it, I do too. I mean, Kira, God, she's just the best. She's the best. She's, she's the so best. good. She's so good. She's so layered. She didn't need to be that great. That's the thing that I always go back to mm-hmm. about how insane it is that they created a character that could have potentially been in competition to Leia, like Princess Leia. That task to me is almost like Herculean, the mm-hmm. idea of creating another love interest for Han. And yeah. at the end of the day, it worked for so many people. I don't really see anyone who's like, I hate Kira because of I only see Han with Leia, which could have totally happened. Mm-hmm. But instead, Kira is like a fully formed character with an awesome ending and so much subtext. It's just I love her. Yeah, yeah. Kira is the the last chunk of Solo is it, it's my favorite part of the film, and it just it's really it's firing on all cylinders. And Kira in the like up with Dryden, that whole sequence where she actually gets the upper hand is just. Ah, chef's kiss. It's so good. (laughs) It's so good. It's just, it's really great to see. She was so complex with such a short amount of time. And it it was really great. And I think, like, comparing her and, like, Jin from Rogue One, I think that Kira brings... I don't I don't mean like it as a knock on Jin, but I think that Kira is in a lot of ways more compelling for me personally. Um that I mean, I think they're both great characters obviously, but Kira there's just something about her that I'm like she's we if you listen to our Mall episode with Katie or even in our last Clone Wars episode, we talked about how Mall is kind of only ever showing you 10% of his plan, and it's fitting that I feel like Kira is kind of like that too. You really mm-hmm. only know like 10% of what she's thinking. Um, she's very expressive. You can read a lot into her emotions and what she's thinking about with her face. But she also keeps a lot hidden just because of the lifestyle that she's grown up in. And there's something very compelling and mysterious about that. And Jin isn't written that way. Jin's very different. But for me, I, I like that aspect of Kira a lot. Yeah. I also think that in the past four years, I've definitely had a, a renaissance of rediscovering Han Solo as a character. I think this is really helped by the sequel trilogy, this movie, um, my love of Ben Solo. I think that it's to return to Han as a character in Solo um, when we were, you know, steeped in the story between, you know, Ray and Han's son. I feel like it was really important to do that. And I actually, I don't know. I've, I have in the past few years, I've definitely become way more of a Han Solo fan than I ever was. Mm -hmm. And it's so surprising to me. I also really accepted and always have accepted Alden's Han. I felt like he did such a great job. And I, I don't, I don't know. I feel like he, he doesn't get the credit he deserves for how amazing of a job he did with Han. Even Harrison Ford approved of it, you know? Mm -hmm. And I, it's, it would be such a shame if we never saw Alden play Han again. 
um, to be honest. I I really do think that it's it would be somewhere worth it to see this the continuation of the story. If I hope so someday in like a Disney Plus series. Yeah, I think that would be really great. I think our relationship with Han Solo is such an interesting one given how long we've been a Star Wars fan and that Han has never been at the top of our list and I remember before Solo came out we were like this is the best for us because we don't have this like crazy emotional attachment to this character where like it would be hard for us to accept Alden as we I remember some people expressing that you know like it was gonna be an um a shift, you know, to go yeah. from Harrison to Alden. Whereas for us, not having kind of the same emotional attachment, it was it was just a different experience. But now you're right. Like I, I feel like my opinion on Han as a character overall has just changed so much, and it's it's kind of cool thinking that that has happened concurrently. Watching you know Han Solo in the sequel trilogy, but also Alden in the film solo i think too it's also a product of us being clone wars kids <laughs> and mm-hmm. having like matt lantner and hayden christensen as the anakin for us and you know star wars fans in general having ewan mcgregor and alec guinness as obi-wan you know we can we can like fill in the blanks ourselves like a lot of star wars fans can so yeah, yeah for sure and you can't you can't really even forget uh Donald Glover's Lando, who yeah. in this movie is so good. It, it, again, it would be a total shame if we never got Donald Glover playing Lando again because the charisma he brings, you know, I think that he really did respect and still does Billy D. Williams's Lando Calrissian. And I feel like you could, you could feel it, but also he brought something completely contemporary to the character that mm-hmm. I think was super needed and really made me love Lando so much. Yeah, I don't know anyone who came out of Solo not loving Lando that much more. <laughs> so true. <laughs> he did such such a great job. <laughs> and you know, the tie-in novels for Solo were some of the best I think that we've had out of the Disney era. Most Wanted and Last Shot. Last Shot is one of our favorites, um and Most Wanted is great. So, I think that they had a really successful tie-in books as well. Yeah, you're so right. I don't think you ever read it, but the solo novelization is so good. Yeah, that's what everyone says. Yeah. It is. Honestly, it's Revenge of the Sith kind of worthy. Like, it's really good. It's probably, if if I could go in terms of, like, artful novelizations, I'd say Revenge of the Sith, The Last Jedi tied with Solo. Mm. Yeah. And then everything else. <laughs> <laughs> everything else. Yeah, that's high praise. Yeah. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's had it had really good tie-ins. I mean, I just remember when we got the la- last shot book and we had like an internal crisis about what way to do the cover. <laughs> yes, that <laughs> was so was. good. <laughs> <laughs> it really was it really was a good time. <laughs> everything about Solo and like the lead up and everything was just so fun and colorful and great that it's just very happy. Yeah. It is funny thinking about how colorful and like that, you know, getting to go to the premiere was such like is the pinnacle of our fandom at this at this point. Um, My life. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm leaving room for the future. Like that okay. was the pinnacle at this point. Um, and um but there have been like so much turmoil with this film prior. It is one of the most expensive films that, you know, made mm-hmm. <laughs> and it did go through 
a lot internally and you know the speculation for it was more on the production of it than the actual film it's it's really fascinating to watch i think it's going to be so great to look back on the actual production of this film in 15 to 20 years yeah if we ever get the truth because we will someday i hope we get all the all the truth will come out i feel like rob bradeau's making of solo book if you're not even a huge fan of the movie solo but you love making of books this is honestly in my opinion by far the best making of book that has come out in the disney era it is so good the photos are so perfect i love seeing how things are are made i highly recommend it if you're looking to buy a new beautiful book that's the same size as the art books which are also (laughs) as beautiful and they all just kind of stack perfectly together and but i say that because the book is fantastic and it really does take you through the production but it's it's still missing chunks about it solo's former directors before ron howard so it's it's really there's some mention of the former directors but not it's it's not as detailed i would really like to know in the same way i'd like to know more about the rogue one production i'd love to know more about all of these productions the 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 rogue one production has just like (laughs) gone under the rug disney's like please forget about the rogue one production (laughs) i know it's so crazy i feel like There's definitely people listening who don't know how much of a tumultuous production that really was. But do some Googling and find out because only recently did I realize how uh, problematic things were on set for that movie. And in the end, we got an amazing film that is will go down as one of the best Star Wars movies ever. But I it's still and I you know what? I say the same thing about Solo. Like Solo is really fun. Love to watch it all the time. And sometimes these tumultuous productions like they still yield a really great movie mm-hmm. and i think that's i think that's what happened uh with solo at least that's my opinion and i think that's what happened with rogue one yeah and even even the force awakens like the force awakens had so many problems i'm going on a spiel here but basically problems don't beget bad movie it's it's just the way it's all done you know yeah it's interesting because i think that i think that rogue ones is not like when i watch solo for me, it feels more obvious that it had a lot of internal problems. <laughs> yeah. Wisdom of its pacing. And, and like I said, the sum versus the whole and that whole thing. Whereas Rogue One flows a lot better for me, I think. And that's, I think that's why a lot of people tend, like, it's kind of gone under the rug just how bad the Rogue One production was or how stressful i'm sure it was Mm -hmm. (laughs) the rogue one production and also like the timing like there was a difference in the types of problems that rogue one and solo had and you know every film has problems it's not it's not reserved for just star wars films but of course star wars fans are always watching i think too with rogue one (laughs) you know in, in 2015 2014 yeah we are keeping on top of things but not nearly the way we did when solo (laughs) was in production we knew nothing we thought we knew things yeah (laughs) so sure we didn't so it's all you know it all comes together but yeah i mean i feel like we're comparing rogue one and solo a lot already but they're both good films and they're fun to watch well you know rogue one isn't i wouldn't say rogue one is fun (laughs) i think and that's truly the definition of why i like solo more than rogue one is rogue one is an amazing watch. I love it. Every time I watch it, I love it more. 
And I sometimes fall into forgetting how much I like it, which is only better when I watch it and then I realize how much I like it. I love that feeling. Mm -hmm. But it's so it makes me cry every single time. Solo doesn't make me cry at all. In fact, (laughs) it makes me very happy and make me laugh. And it's very good. So I feel like that's (laughs) that's the mood I need right now in this moment. So yeah. Today, April 28th, 2020, I really like Solo a smidge more than Rogue One. <laughs> Valid. Valid. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So let's actually get into our discussion a little bit okay. more. So talking about defining Solo, I think that's kind of the basis of this whole discussion. I think Almost to start it off, it's really interesting to think about like Star Wars on StarWars.com. They write that Solo is a series of daring escapades, which is a very specific way of talking about this film. And it doesn't use the word heist, which I think is very interesting. So how do you define Solo? How did you define Solo before going into everything that we've gone into for this episode? So I think the word heist was always used because of the train heist um, part, because that was a very famous sequence even before the movie came out. It felt like so much work went into that. It felt like that was in the original cut of the movie, or at least the original filming part. So, you know, a lot of times were were spent in the Dolomites um, filming that. But I never really thought about the movie as a heist movie. I think that maybe it was in the back of my mind, but... I think something in terms of genre people were talking about was Solo originally, especially with the way things were framed in the trailers and the teasers, was a Western. People were talking a lot about, you know, is Solo a Western? Is the way that they're this whole crew, the way that things were filmed? I mean, there's a a couple of very specific shots in Solo that are very Western in its essence. Perhaps the most famous is the the camera on Hans Blaster uh, when he kind of like moseys in against uh, Emphis Nest at the very end of the movie and he kind of makes the mistake and the falcon flies away. That scene is shot just like a Western. But just like with all Star Wars movies, they're all an amalgamation of different genres. And as always, it's a Western will always fall back on that. You know, Caitlin and I recently watched Hidden Fortress, which on Criterion, there's a whole discussion about how um, Kurosawa was also influenced by the works of John Ford and Westerns and everything such as. So it's it's interesting to think about how I always love to think about how how Star Wars is really just a combination of all these different types of genre. And uh, heist is definitely included in that. Um, I think that Solo also embodies a lot of that like 80s spunk, even in the very beginning with the neon, the costumes. It's referred to in the art book and also in that making of book um, about the, you know, that it's it kind of gives you a little bit of like back to the future vibes in a weird way when they're the car chase and everything like that. But the way I think about Solo, honestly, the only word that comes to my mind when I think about Solo in terms of what kind of movie it is, is just fun. It's just a really fun movie. And I think that it blends all these different types of fun types of movies together really well. Yeah, I think what's the saying like time is a flat circle and <laughs> what's the saying? <laughs> what's the saying? I don't know, something I say every single day these days. <laughs> <laughs> Today it took me so long to realize that it was Tuesday. <laughs> me too. Me too. <laughs> yeah, okay, so time is a flat circle, so is genre. <laughs> Mm -hmm. (laughs) just you know thinking about 
everything that's kind of compressed into Star Wars. And you're like, oh, Star Wars is really inspired by Japanese uh, filmmaker Kurosawa and, you know, Hidden Fortress and things like that. And then you're like, oh, well, that was really inspired by John Ford Westerns. And okay, well, what was he inspired by? And, you know, it's all kind of coming back and unfolding in on itself. So it just, it makes sense in a weird way. Yeah, because this is so postmodern, but does genre even matter at this point in life? Like we're in 2020, everyone is influenced by each other. No one is making a specific genre film. Everything is, you know, a sci-fi fantasy or fantasy with sci-fi elements. It, like it doesn't, it's fun to look at things through a specific lens and it's great to do that because it's awesome to break things down. But Star Wars has transcended even what genre even means because Star Wars in itself has become its own genre, Mm -hmm. if that even makes sense. And I think we know when something is specifically Star Warsian or has that Star Wars feeling because we understand um, deep within us what makes something Star Wars, whether it's conventions that we will go through in a heist film um, or, you know, a romantic trope or anything like like that. It's not bound by what genre even means yeah that's the that's the pro and the con i think of star wars because if you're going through you know we're we're about to go through 16 different conventions of a heist film and the perfect one right for charles is oceans 11 which ticks every box he's like this is the heist film and so, you know, like you said, the the marketing for Solo didn't always necessarily push it as a heist film, but that was definitely a part of their language when they were talking about it. You know, it's a heist adventure. It's escapades. Like, it's a Western. They're really – like, they're putting you in, in a certain kind of mindset by pulling on all these different genres. But then when we were diving in deep to this specific genre of a heist, it's like, okay, it's not – like. Spoiler, Solo isn't going to check every single box (laughs) in these Mm -hmm. 16 conventions. Is it still a heist? Does it still need to be a heist? If it's not checking, you know, 10 out of 16 conventions, what does that mean? And of course, with film and with any kind of art form, it's, it's not supposed to be rigid like that. You know, Solo could check two of these boxes and we could still conclude that it's a successful heist film. You know, we have the freedom to do that because of interpretation and how art is consumed and especially pop culture is is like a whole other beast on its own, I think, especially with how you analyze it in today's modern age and especially something like you've been saying, Charlotte, with Star Wars, that just it is its own genre and it's its own genre by pulling in so many other genres. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's just I think I think that's what's fun about a discussion like this is going through something that, you know, the kind of data that Charles has pulled is very um, strict in a way and being able to see where solo does fit into these boxes is is fun to see like how it would line up in this kind of data-driven analysis but then at the end of the day take all that data and analyze it in a way that's more fluid and more uh not rigid i don't know how to describe that i lost <laughs> the word yeah fluid. <laughs> not not rigid <laughs> not as structured <laughs> i think that we should talk about what makes a successful heist film Because I think we've all seen them, right? Even if we don't think we've seen them, we know exactly what we're referring to when we talk about a heist film. When we have an antihero who wants to steal something and then at the end of it, they're going to get away with it and we're going to root for them. You know, I think that's what makes a good heist film is 
this Robin Hood-esque, you know, stealing from the bad and helping the good type thing, even if the good means themselves, because at the end of the day, you root for, you know, your main character, even if they're terrible people. And that's what makes heist so fun. Another fun thing about heist films is there's always a trick. There's a magic trick. And I think in the human experience, we love magic tricks, even if we can roll our eyes sometimes at, you know, people who come around and they have like a card trick. At the end of the day, we want to see how they do it and how they get away with it in order for us to be entranced, for us to be tricked, for us to, in a in like one moment, believe that magic is possible and then also have it explained to us. Mm-hmm. I, I think that there's something really magical about watching a heist movie. Again, we'll get into this where you're like, how did they do it? How did they pull this off? I think that when sometimes I watch a movie, and this was happening the other night when we were watching Hidden Fortress, Caitlin, where I was just like, how are they going to get out of this? And I think that is one of the best feelings when you watch a movie, when you really ask yourself, like, these characters are in too deep, and watching them escape this is so fun, you know, because you know that they're going to get out. And if they don't get out, what does that mean for the story? And I love answering those questions, even if you're even if it's subconscious in your head. It's just a really kind of serotonin boosting part of watching a film. Yeah, that's the fun thing about something that has kind of a structure to it, like a heist film. It's like it will follow certain steps, but then if the film is ingenious enough or creative enough, it puts the characters in the situations where you're like, man, what does an ending look like here? I've I've followed these story beats before and they're they're kind of tracking, but now we've taken like a plot twist and how are we going to get to some version of a happy ending? And if we don't, I'm sad, but is it still good? Is it, like was I still entertained? I think it, it's it's fun. One of the things I like about heist films is I like how they're called. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like how it's called a heist film. That was one of the first things that I think it was in Charles's article and research that he pointed out that a crime film that's about cops. A heist film we're siding with the robbers, which I think that kind of that nomenclature is just it's really fascinating and it does just put you in a completely different mindset like you say heist film you're like okay we're with the criminals but you don't even think of them as criminals because everything is from their perspective and we're on their side and that's different from a crime film which you're probably going to be on the side of the cops for the most part yeah yeah it's interesting yeah when you were thinking about talking about magic tricks, I was thinking about the Now You See Me film. Yeah, I mean, that's a heist film. It that's is. That's a heist movie. It's fun, and, too. Yeah, <laughs> it is fun because movies that are set in Vegas and have magic in them are really fun. And that's why that movie works for the most part. It's not my favorite movie, but it's entertaining enough, you know, and I think that's what a good heist does, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. I want to talk a little bit about the heist the train heist that gets so referred to in in solo versus a heist film because i know some people are probably listening and being like it's a heist film there's a train heist and i think in a way that's fair <laughs> i think that's fair to say because that's probably why i thought of doing this episode <laughs> in the very <laughs> beginning <laughs> you know but i think that when we were rewatching this a couple weeks ago uh, my thought was this train heist, while, you know, fantastic in in its technical achievement, I mean, talk about the the way the coaxium explodes at the end and how that's a, a physical effect. Like, I, sometimes I just can't. Um, 
And I do really like the way that that the, I don't know everything about that sequence is great except for the Val part, but it's it's a good sequence. But at the same time, it's a failure. It's a failed heist. So it's interesting because I think that you can call that perhaps act one um, of the film because it kind of sets you off in in how you think about Solo as a heist film because it really does raise the stakes of are they able to do this? In the next two acts, are they ever going to be able to pull off a successful heist? Because they didn't before. They lost a member of their crew and it was devastating. Yeah, two members of their crew. Yes, thank you. And it was devastating because we really liked those characters and they each had a specific set of skills and we liked them. They were very engaging. But at the end of the day, I you know, despite our attachment to these characters and the sort of optics that happened with with this film, I think that you know that this was put in the movie in act one in order to raise the stakes for what they have to do later when they realize that they're in over their head where it's much bigger than themselves because, um, you know, Beckett isn't just working for himself. He's working for someone. He has a boss. And I think that's just something to keep in mind. I just wanted to mention this here that the train heist, while yes, a heist (laughs) is a failed heist. And that's something that I think we can keep in the back of our minds. Yeah. I think this conversation dovetails really nicely into like the structure of heist films and the pacing of solo i think this goes back to how starwars.com describes it as a series of escapades it's funny because that's how we often talked about solo like imagine if solo was a mini series because the the train heist kind of comes at like the very end it really is kind of our bridge between act one and act two it comes at the very end of act one and i think that there's a lot of time lost in the traditional heist structure with like our introduction to Han and Kira, that whole thing, everything that happens on Mim Bam. And then when they finally get into the train heist sequence, like our, our time spent with characters like Val and Rio is very short in the overall scheme of things, but their deaths I think are supposed to have a big impact on the crew from this failed heist. To what degree the film does that successfully, I think, is a good argument. But yeah, I mean, like you said, it is. this is a heist sequence. It's a failed heist, which is an important part of a heist film, too. Does that make it a heist film? Stay right. tuned to find out. <laughs> yeah, I think that in some heists, they even talk about, sometimes it's not even showed when they, when they fail. But in Solo, it's shown, you know? And I, I think that this is where it really gets into... It's a Star Wars movie, and there's several things that happen because the Star mm-hmm. Wars movie is loaded in action sequence because it has to be. I feel like we understand that, you know, if we're if we're an hour into a Star Wars movie and there's no action, we're like, where are we? You know, <laughs> <laughs> why are we? You know what I mean? It's like it's almost it's so crazy because I don't go to Star Wars for the action. But at the same time, it's like if I'm not watching a lightsaber fight or something exploding or like some action with some stormtroopers like why am I watching Star Wars? Because that's what's super fun about it, you know? And I think that this sequence is an example of that, of we have to watch our characters fail. And we're, I keep, we're, we're spending too much time on this, but I have to say, just keep that in the back of your mind that this is a point of failure. In other heist movies, it's discussed that there's a point of failure. Sometimes, even in Ocean's Eleven, the first time we see Danny Ocean is him getting out of the prison. Um, out of prison. Yes, exactly. So it's, 
I don't know that that in itself is a failure. Like he got pulled put away <laughs> for trying to you know do exactly what he wanted to do later to a, a greater degree. Yes, he did. <laughs> he did. It's very good. All right, should we get into it? Yes, let's get into it. Okay, so welcome to part two, where we ask, is Solo a heist film? And in this part, we're going to be asking two questions. The number one is, is Solo a heist film? And if it is, so what? And I'm very excited to get to those. So as we mentioned at the top of the show, we're really following Charles Kunkin's Kunkins, I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. I'm so sorry. Anatomy of a Heist Diagram. Again, this will all be linked in our um, show notes. But I think that it's it's really interesting because, like we mentioned, he says that Ocean's Eleven is the perfect heist movie because it ticks all these boxes. And we're going to go through each box and we'll decide if if Solo passes or fails and whether or not it's a heist movie. So let's get let's get started with the first convention. Without further ado... I know. Let's get started. Let's get started. Number one. Okay, so the first convention that a heist movie should follow is the fact that the story is about a single score. And this is what Charles says about it. A proper heist film is a story about the preparation and execution of a single big score. They are stories about how our heroes steal something, not why. A fact that most bad heist movies miss. So, Caitlin, is Solo about a single score? I mean... Yes and no. <laughs> the the fail, I mean, yes, it, it has a, sing, a singular goal of getting coaxium. They just go through a lot of different sequences in different places to actually get it. Mm-hmm. And what they're going to do with it evolves. Right. I think that it's... It's interesting. The way that he phrases this here is that it's about how they're going to... About how the steer, heroes steal something and not why... It doesn't necessarily make Solo fall into the category. Yeah. So we know the why because Beckett owes someone and Han gets wrapped into it because he makes a couple mistakes. So we know why he's part of it. In the end, I think that why completely changes. And that's something we'll get to later um, because we know as an audience that Han is a good person. So stealing to help the bad guys isn't necessarily something that we know Han to be at least how we see him in the original trilogy and even in the sequel trilogy, right? So I would say that you're right with the yes and no. But at the end of the day, I do think this movie starts off by saying that, you know, people are fighting for fuel and certain, you know, medicine and and necessities. And the entire movie is about fighting for fuel. Coaxium. Yeah. I think that Solo, because of the nature of it being a Star Wars film, tries to focus on the why sometimes more than a typical heist film would. So I think that I think that it could lean more towards no, but still kind of be squarely in the middle. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think that we'll be talking about, like we're saying, focusing on the why has a lot to do with Han Solo himself. And so once we're talking about him, it'll kind of hopefully discuss more about this first convention. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think that we're in a unique position because unlike the Ocean movies or Heat 
or Logan Lucky, we've never met these characters before. We know nothing about them. You know, we, we're learning everything we can in the runtime of the movie in perhaps in the first 15 minutes of the movie, right? In their introduction. With Han Solo, we come in it with, with a bunch of baggage, with <laughs> years and years, of like 40 years behind us, right, of, of Star Wars knowledge. And Han Solo is a character through books, through comics, through movies, through TV shows, everything, right? And in that way, we already know who Han is in our mind. This movie... Maybe perhaps one of the failures of it, it didn't necessarily surprise me with Han's character as much as I wanted it to. I feel like the discovery here is the same discovery that Han has in A New Hope, right? Like, yeah, he's a good guy. <laughs> and that's what makes the end of A New Hope so great, right? When he comes back and helps Luke. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think you're so spot on when you say that this movie tries to ask to answer the why a little bit more than you know, the how. And I think as an audience, we would have accepted the how um, without the why. I think we would have been like, oh, yeah, that we're on a Han Solo adventure. Like, I don't, Han right now, he could be a terrible person because he has that, like, reformed moment in in A New Hope. Like, we can see him earlier, like, almost an Anakin situation or a reverse Anakin, really, of revealing this character younger. Because at the end of the day, this is a prequel, right? Mm-hmm. Um and it's we could have seen just the how, but instead we got both. And I think that's fine. Um, but in terms of this convention, the story being about a single score, I would say it passes. I think it is about a single score. I would say that like 75% of the film passes. I think because we spend so much time in the beginning doing other things besides scoring. <laughs> yeah, I think that's fair. Yeah, I think that what you were saying about... <laughs> Charlotte in our show notes put 75% pass. <laughs> it's moving on to the next grade level, guys. <laughs> okay, so moving into convention number two, which is the perpetrator is the hero. And this is the quote I referenced earlier where Charles writes, crime stories are about cops, heists are about thieves. The protagonist must be the one pulling off the job. And again, the verbiage I think is important just to take note of and how we come into these films. The protagonist must be the one pulling off the job. They don't say crime. It's the job. It's like like the last convention. It's the score. And I think that how we've been talking about Han, it's pretty clear that he's the hero. He's the newbie hero in this film. He's he's. I wouldn't say he's pulled into Beckett's plan. He kind of forces himself in. The whole sequence in the beginning is him just trying to get on board that ship so he can get out. So he is the hero, but I think the thing about this type of heist movie where our main character is the quote-unquote green one where he doesn't know what's going on is that he's listening to all of these influences on him. And I think that Beckett really is that big influence on Han in this film. And so that's really what this film is about. Whereas with Ocean's Eleven, like Danny is – he's the one that's calling all the shots. He's the leader of the group and he's our focus for the story, our main focus, I would say. Whereas it's kind of the reverse in Solo. Han is our main focus, but the film also has a lot of important things to do in that time because of what we've been talking about, like our baggage with him of how did he meet Chewie? How did they become friends? How did he get off Corellia? Like it's trying to set up certain things as well because of – because of a fan fan's expectations. And I don't mean that negatively. I just mean that like we're going to tell a prequel about Han and Chewie. Like this is a great time to show when they meet. Like let's do that. And I think that's a good thing. But 
I think that's where it, it deviates a little from what a, a very structured heist film would spend time doing. Right. I think I completely agree with you. But if heists are about thieves, I think the first time we see Han in Solo is him thieving, mm -hmm. stealing, taking a car, Kira being impressed by it, saying that they can they can leave. So I'd say this movie is about a thief, right? I think yeah. that Han from the very beginning is about, you know, he is a thief. He, of course, has to struggle to survive. He's a street rat and he lives in, you know, he does projects from uh, Lady Proxima for sure. And all of that is its own, again, Star Warsian type of thing. I love something I really love about Solo, just as a side note. I love the beginning of this movie. I love the whole Lady Proxima thing, and I just really like the idea of, and this was really brought to life in Ray Carson's Most Wanted book, so good. Mm -hmm. I feel like it really showed how they do deeds, and they have sort of like a head boy and a head girl down there for Lady Proxima <laughs> in order to steal stuff. It's so great. And um, anyway, so Han and Kira are both thieves. So, you know, our heroes are thieves. I would say this passes. I would say it passes as well. Great. Congratulations, Solo. Okay, so the third convention is the hero already wants to steal. And this is the quote from Charles. He writes, Remember how we said it's about the how, not the why. Trying to quickly jam in the whole backstory of why our hero goes from civilian to thief at the beginning of the film doesn't work. It often comes out cheesy and leads to a caper, meaning the job is run by a group of amateurs. The character arc demonstrating the fall towards a life of crime is a separate story altogether. It requires a movie full of its own conventions and obligatory scenes in order to be sympathetic. See something like the masterpiece Breaking Bad season one. I think it can be clever for heist films to reveal the motivation behind the job as the movie plays out, but our heroes should come out of the gate swinging, okay with stealing, planning to steal. Don't start a movie by trying to give us a whole shifting of their moral compass. I think this is such an interesting... Uh, way of describing it because yes, Han already wants to steal, but we got a whole backstory of where he came from too. <laughs> mm -hmm. But he does come out gate swinging though, Caitlin. He, he is, does. He is ready to steal. He's ready to leave. He's ready to risk it all for his girl. And I think that it's you're we're so his moral compass isn't really shifting. I think he's so interested in a, in a life of crime. Um, not necessarily, well, it's hard because not necessarily a life of crime, but getting away and whatever that means, he wants to be cool doing it. Like I think about the scene that's probably you and I's one of our favorite scenes in Solo, maybe in Star Wars is the campfire scene when he, it's so good. The, when Beckett, Beckett, you know, does something funny with his blaster and he immediately goes, show me how to do that. And I love that part because he's just so interested in you know, being like Beckett, for one, but also sh learning how to show off in that way. Yeah, I think that a good comparison actually to Han would be the Martez sisters in the Clone Wars. It's like they're it's, – it's about survival, really. It's like Han is very okay taking from from other people, but if he didn't need to, would he? Right. I the thing about Han is that he is this flyboy like we've been talking about he likes to show off so maybe he would <laughs> but you know a lot like 
like we've been talking about like not focusing on the how and not the why and how Solo kind of tries to do both but leans towards the why. A lot of Han's motivations or I think I don't think the film does this part as successfully, but a lot of Han's motivations are Kira. And this is very evident in the front half. And I think it kind of loses it once he has Kira back in his life, honestly. He mentions it, of course, but there's not the same kind of fire in him about it that I think I would have expected, given that he's been focused on this for like three years. I think that's also like for as great as the opening is of Solo, it really surprised me how much time passed <laughs> between <laughs> him leaving uh, Corellia and when he does meet Becca, you know, three years and he's had absolutely no way to contact Kira back on Corellia, which I believe that he's had no way to contact her, but it's such a long time. Uh, yeah to be really focused on this one thing and I kind of lost my train of thought now so I apologize for that but yeah I think that I think this is kind of like a 50% pass for me (laughs) but I think that's due to like our relationship with Solo like it doesn't need like the way the way that Charles writes um we don't need a backstory demonstrating their life to crime. That's a whole other film with certain conventions and scenes in order for us to be sympathetic. In a lot of ways, Solo did need that. But then in some ways, it didn't because everyone loves Han Solo already. Mm-hmm. So I think I think that this would be one of those ones where I, I – yes, he technically passes, but it's kind of weird that it passes. <laughs> I just want to challenge you a little bit of – so at the end of the movie, Han, you know, Kira gets away, but he has the Falcon. He has Chewie, right? He has he he wins the Falcon back. He has mm-hmm. he has some money. Um, well, actually, he doesn't have any money, huh? He <laughs> bummer. <laughs> Regardless, he he did win a prize, and that prize is the Falcon, and that ending is great. Yeah. And at the end of it, you know, he's going to go to the big shot gangster who's putting together a crew and so you say if han didn't need to steal would he in this moment han doesn't actually really need to go towards a life of crime but he is so i think that han actually does a hundred percent pass this because i think han does want to live this like this life that is so intriguing to him, this this Beckett-esque life of fulfilling jobs and making money, making a quick buck and flying around the galaxy and being free. And his definition of free, I think, is is incorrect because if you if you work for someone, if you work for a big shot gangster, you're never free as Kira demonstrates, right? She got out, but she is not free. And I think that at the end of the movie, though, there is that like, well, yes, it's exciting. You know, we jump to hyperspace. The the theme plays. It's all great and everything. But there is that, that bit of dread of, oh, man, Han Solo is going to be owing Jabba the Hutt for the rest of his life. And it almost kills him a couple of times. <laughs> and that's exactly what he's going to do right now. And he didn't need to do that. So I just want to challenge you of. Did he need to steal? Yeah, I think he gets to that point at the end of it, though. I don't know if I would say, like, if Han had gotten back to Kira really quickly at the beginning of the film, like, we wouldn't have our movie. You know, I think that once he goes through all of this throughout the film, he gets it, like, Han's next movie, I think he 100% falls into this category. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I do still think he falls into this category in this film, but not as completely as his next one. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
<laughs> Which is, it's always so interesting just to take a step back that this movie actually didn't tell us the story of how he got entangled with Jabba the Hutt. I think everyone thought that was going to be the movie and then it really wasn't, especially because they did tease the whole uh, Big Shot Gangster putting together a crew line that I love so much. They said it all the time <laughs> in marketing to the point where we even put it on a t-shirt. You know, it's so great. I love that line, but Fun. it's not about that. You know, that line isn't even said at the until the very end of the movie, like the last 15 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. You spend the whole movie waiting. When is it coming? When is it coming? <laughs> Thank God it was included. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think that, yeah, I, it passes. I'd say it passes. Yeah. Okay, so we have a hero that already wants to steal. We already have a hero that needs to steal. Can I amend it? Yeah, I think that's fair. I think in a way, though, Star Wars presents circumstances because we understand the empire and the oppression that comes with this time period that, you know, that sort of need is set up immediately in Solo's amazing crawl in the blue font, Mm -hmm. you know? Well, I I don't think I – did I ever finish my Martez sisters thought? No. (laughs) Continue. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) So the Martez sisters, if you're not watching Clone Wars, these are a bit of spoilers for season seven, so skip ahead if you like. But the Martez sisters, I think, are actually a good comparison to Han at the beginning of Solo. You know, they're in the whole thing with Trace and Rafa that Ahsoka presents to them is that, or rather the conflict between Rafa and Ahsoka is that Rafa knows that the things she's doing aren't great. But I think she approaches Ahsoka with a lot of, well, what do you want me to do about it? Like, this is the life that I've been born into. This is how I survive. And if someone wants to, like, pay me to fix their droids on the side in a back alley, I'm going to do it. This is what I need to do in order to survive and in order to make a life for myself and for my sister. And I think we really get behind them and root for them because we want them to be better. But like Rafa is totally going to steal and Trace would too from someone if they thought that it was going to help them on their next steps. And especially if it was from people who are of higher class than them in like the social stratosphere of Coruscant because they think that like that's the like the class system that they were brought up in and they have a lot of like beef with the Jedi and for people on the top levels of Coruscant they have very specific ideas of who those people are and I think that Solo is a good example of that too like a good addition to that conversation of you know the beginning and they explore this a lot in Most Wanted like Kira and Han, they talk a lot about getting out, but everything that they're doing are not quote unquote good things. But for them, it's like, this is where I am. This is what I need to do in order to survive and hopefully get out one day. Yeah. Morality is really blurred, I think, in this specific time period mm-hmm. of Star Wars, especially when you have a character who is basically bound under a giant worm and <laughs> that's that's their life you know they oh, can't God. even get out <laughs> and then we right it's so crazy and then we one of the best scenes in the film makes me cry every single time and i honestly can't even really explain why it makes me cry it just makes me very emotional i think it's just really well done when they're leaving and you know han and kira are separated and you can even feel just the gray tones of that entire situation where um you know they hand over the the, the little coaxium and han gets through but kira doesn't um, that that whole that scene is so set up so well. You hear the rebels' imperial march, which is still so freaking cool. I think that it's it, it, you just really feel that wow, these people are stuck forever in this. Maybe not forever, but 
in this time period, it will feel like forever, um, this oppressive society. And they need to do whatever they can to to get out of it. And uh, yes, if that is stealing from a bunch of people, then I will believe that, you know? Yeah, exactly. Okay. So the next convention is the heist is a success. This is what Charles says. We want victory for our heroes, justice for our villains. When the arc of a story has created characters that we have grown to love and made them our heroes, then it is a cathartic letdown to see them fail. Does Solo fall follow this? Yes. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah. It's funny because the end point ended up very different than what they were going to do in the beginning you know, delivering the coaxium to Dryden. They didn't end up doing that. In fact, they ended up killing Dryden. <laughs> so yeah. really took a turn there. But yeah, it is successful for what they decided they wanted to do by the end of it. Yeah, I think that this one's a pretty simple one. I I think that, yes, the heist is a success. It's not only a success for our characters, especially, specifically Han, but I'd say it's a success as an audience member because you and that's something I really like about this list, actually, is that it's more theater audience, like meta focused rather than story focused. Also, like it acknowledges that a heist is fun, that this this type of film is enjoyable to watch and the reasons why we like to watch it. And the heist being a success, I think the way that, you know, that you get to the twists and turns of um, Han actually giving the coaxium to Emphis Nest to help the rebellion, I think makes it a success. You know, when from the moment Kira says he, he's going to help you um, to Emphis later, I think is, and then it happens, you feel the sense of, of relief, of excitement that it didn't land in the hands of people like Dryden, Dryden Voss or Darth Maul, right? Instead, mm-hmm. things are totally different. Yeah. Yeah, it passes. It passes. It passes. So the fifth convention, and this I think is a good one, is the hero gets the want and the need. And Charles writes, in the classic rules of drama, in the end of the story, the hero must sacrifice the thing they want in order to gain the thing they need. For example, in 1997 Titanic, Rose loses Leo. I like how it's Leo and Rose. It's Jack, but okay. (laughs) We've all been there. (laughs) Rose loses Jack to the icy Atlantic, but is then emboldened to finally escape the shackles of society imposed on her by her mother and fiancé by hiding from them on the rescue ship. (laughs) And he writes, I'm tearing up just thinking about it. (laughs) But in a heist, the sacrifice is a fake. Master thieves get the money and the girl. So I think the question here is, what actually is Han's want and need? Okay, so I think his want is to be free and to not take orders from anyone. He says it in the beginning, and Kira kind of expresses this as well. But I think the need actually is companionship. And I think he finds, and this is where I think the movie could actually have done more for this. And I think this is more of watching it a hundred jillion times and getting this, but maybe I'm just in the minority and this is the lens I view things. But I think the need really is companionship. And I think he finds the companionship with Chewie rather than Kira. I think he starts off the movie thinking that he'll forever have the companionship with Kira because they want the same things. They want to be out of out of there together. They want to be free. But Kira has always wanted something different. She from the like from the first five minutes of her screen time, she's interested in nice things. She in a in a weird way, I think that we can infer that she 
kind of likes power, right? Mm-hmm. It's not – I don't think the way that the movie frames it means that it's a bad thing either, which is, I think, a really fascinating aspect of Solo and something I really like about Kira and the framing of her character and something I think they did really, really well. Um, I – but instead, Han finds companionship in Chewbacca, which I think we all knew was going to happen because Chewie is the most loyal friend to Han, right? I think we mm-hmm. all know this. And in the end, it's Chewie that he's with. They escape shackles literally together, right? (laughs) And it's great. It's awesome. And I think that we hoped to see Han and Kira escape together, but that didn't happen. But instead, we have Han and Chewie escaping together. So I would say his want is to be free, but his need is companionship. And it's interesting because while Kira is written as a femme fatale type of character, and we really want him to end up with the girl... The Star Wars nature of it all is that we know that Han deserves to be with Leia, that Leia and Han are meant for each other, right? Yeah. Um, and we know that he's not going to get the girl. But I don't know if the girl is exactly apt in this situation. I really do think it's the companion. And the companion is Chewie rather than Kira. Yeah, it's... Yeah, I think because we're used to there being the girl who stays with the guy at the end of these stories, mm-hmm. <laughs> especially because a lot of the stories that Charles was looking at, a lot of the films were from, a lot of them were from like the 90s and early 2000s, <laughs> mm-hmm. which I think had a very different way of writing about women oftentimes. Yeah, I think that this, this is, I think, a hard question. Not a hard question. I think you've laid it out really well, actually, and very succinctly, more than I could ever do it. But like this idea of like this will change in the next film which is kind of cool i think because of course it changes because we we don't get everything we want and need in one chapter of our lives <laughs> and we go through different seasons and i think it's it's i think it's fun thinking about it from kira's perspective too like you've been talking about like han's want is to be free and not to take orders from anyone i think in the beginning of the movie it was to get back to kira but but in order to make her be free with him. And you're right, like he wanted companionship and he wanted to be free with his companion, Kira. <laughs> and it turned out, I think that the cool twist about this and maybe not so p- plot twist because it's Star Wars is that it is with Chewie and not with Kira. Uh, because like that kind of romantic companionship he'll get in the next film and we already know that that's coming. We already know it's a done deal. I think it's cool to think about it with Kira, though, because her one, I think, is the same as Han's of to be free. But in order to do that, she needs power. And in a way, that binds her even more into this system that she found herself in um, or was put into when she was young. Kira is a really complex character. And it, it's, yeah, I like watching her. <laughs> Okay, so do we say that the hero gets the want and the need in Solo? I mean, he's sad that he doesn't get Kira, but yeah. (laughs) I think we all know as an audience, though, that that's not his need. That's what's so interesting about this movie is that it plays with that. But it also doesn't cast Kira out as the not Leia, which is, again, just to go back to what I was saying before about Kira, that's one of the things that I think is actually quite remarkable about this movie is that I don't think of Kira as the not Leia, despite her looking similarly being a white brunette. Like, yes, I, I get that. And she definitely could have been cast uh, differently. But I do love Amelia Clark. So and I think she did a great job. 
But I think that it's it's just interesting because they really fleshed out this character and gave her a really great arc and a beginning to an amazing story that I think we all want to see more of that doesn't just makes her another interesting story in Han's life, but an interesting story on her own as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I never feel like Kira and Leia are competing in my mind as like Han's love interests. Uh, I think they both... They both serve – like, they're both very important pieces in his life as romantic interests, and they're very different, too. But at the same time, they do have a lot of qualities that are similar, not just that they're both white, brown-haired women. <laughs> yeah. But <laughs> they both are good leaders and know what to do in a situation and take charge when they need to, so – yeah, I think that's fun also to set up this idea of Han having a type. I yeah. love that. Like, come yeah. on, that's great. <laughs> what would Kira and Leia ever talk about if they had ever met? They'd make fun of Han the entire time. They would. I think they'd be friends. They'd I think they would be too. <laughs> it would be really good. <laughs> okay, so number six is the twist ending. So here's what Charles has to say. Part of the hero's plan has been hidden from the audience, or we know the plan, but the hero has to improvise. So interesting because I actually think Solo falls into both of these. <laughs> I think part of the hero's plan is hidden from the audience, but also we know the we know the plan partially, but the hero does have to improvise. And both of those are really fun. I think across the board, where Solo succeeds in it is in its third act with the twist ending, with this whole switcheroo of who has the coaxium, who doesn't have the coaxium, where is the coaxium going, and who can we trust with Dryden, not not Dryden, with Dryden being in on the fact that Beckett is still alive, and also the whole hidden weapon inside of the coaxium thing. Like, there's a bunch of different twisty things that happen, but the number one twist ending, definitely, I think as a Star Wars fan, is the fact that Kira stays, and that she takes over and is been has been working with Darth Maul. Darth Maul dun, dun, in dun. itself is a twist ending. Yeah, it's the best ending. I think that again, we're we were so lucky to go to the solo premiere in Hollywood in 2018. I I said it earlier, it was the best day of my entire life. And the fact that that didn't get spoiled um made the energy in that room <laughs> the Insane. best ever. We were Everyone was so confused. And the best thing ever is that Caitlin will never say this, but she knew it was immediately Sam Witwer right away. And she was just like with her giant popcorn that we got. She was like, <laughs> that's Sam Witwer. What is that? Sam Witwer. Savannah's on our other side. And she's like, what? what? And everyone's losing their mind. No one knew what happened. I couldn't hear anything. It was crazy. <laughs> I lost it was crazy. all sense of sound. Yeah. <laughs> Am I wrong? Like it was, we were all like, this movie just took the craziest turn. It really did. Yeah, <laughs> I think that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Like this is, this is where Solo is at its finest. I think is in the last act, specifically this whole sequence with Dryden, Han, Kira, and Beckett, uh, and Chewie all up there. I keep wanting to call that Dryden's throne room. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kind of is. It kind of. I remember. Is. Every Everyone making that comparison because of the way that it looks like. Yeah. And the fact that throne rooms are so everywhere in Star Wars, like it's kind of his throne room. Let's be real. It's yeah. his room. Yeah. It's his lounge. Slash <laughs> 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 museum slash hangout slash bachelor pad slash throne room. Yeah. I 
I think that this does everything that really just it sits you up on the edge of your seat. Even before Maul was brought into it, seeing, you know, that Beckett is actually working with Dryden and then he takes Chewie and then it's, you know, Dryden's trying to get Han to come with him and then they have a, barely a scuffle and then Kira enters the picture and then she, you're right, I think like the biggest twist is that Kira doesn't go with Han and that she stays behind and then of course there's there's Maul and the hero's plan is hidden from the audience and then we're watching him improvise watching them all improvise really watching Kira save the day (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, in the very end I think the ending of Solo is just it's so 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 good it really is so good it's you know I was I'm reminded of the beginning of Return of the Jedi which is also quite successful because the hero's plan is hidden from the audience. And I wouldn't necessarily say the beginning of Return of the Jedi. I mean, I guess you can you can view it through this lens, but it is not necessarily like a mini heist. But I still think that something that makes the tension so good in the beginning of Return of the Jedi is the fact that we don't know the plan. And I love the theory always that no one really knows the plan, but they're just all... <laughs> you know, coming in disguises to Java's palettes. I love that. I don't know if anyone is, if you're listening and you haven't heard that, but that's that's the extent of the theory that they actually had no plan, but they're all just showing up and Luke kind of has to come in and be like, all right. yeah, this is how, yeah, <laughs> this, is, this is it. I'm going to use my Jedi magic. Such a cat and, theory. <laughs> yeah, but it's so good. It's, it's so, so good. fun to watch the movie that way. And, but regardless, I still think that there's something so fun about it is the fact that you have all of our heroes but they're masked and you don't really know what's happening at all until it automatically like it basically fully clicks when leia rescues han and mm-hmm. you're like wow they're all here this is awesome yeah so a pass for twist ending great pass job for twist ending pass for twist. i wish we had a sound effect like a Yay. (laughs) So the seventh convention is recruitment of the ensemble sequence. And Charles writes, the collection of the team is one of the most enjoyable sequences in a heist and should occur within the first 25% of the film or act one. I don't think Solo passes this convention. I think like we've discussed, it spends a lot of time in the beginning doing Han's backstory uh, with Kira, which is, you know, good again like this is a star wars film it's doing other things but as a heist this is what i think is really lacking from solo is the building of the ensemble especially considering we lose half of our ensemble in the first failed heist and gain a completely quote-unquote new member who has a very pivotal role for the last you know two-thirds two members but yes I totally agree. I think that Solo might have benefited from this. I think they tried, but maybe it just didn't feel Star Wars enough. And maybe it wouldn't have felt Star Wars enough because I think a movie like Guardians of the Galaxy did this pretty well if you can compare sci-fi movies. But Ocean's Eleven really does take the cake, take the cake in terms of ensemble building when you go through all the different members of the, the, the Eleven, really. And who are going to be part of the heist. And they're all so unique and it is so fun, you know. And yeah, I don't think Solo really did this, unfortunately. So fail. Yeah. I think this, yeah. 
this is this is like 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 Charles writes. It's one of the most enjoyable sequences in a heist, and it really is. I always look forward to collecting the crew, <laughs> gathering the weirdos. Yeah, gathering the weirdos. It's so fun. It's funny because remember when we were watching all the trailers for Suicide Squad, and they really hyped the like putting together the squad, and we we're like, this is so cool. And then it wasn't. <laughs> Yep. <laughs> but we were we were really banking on it being a good movie from the on like putting together the ensemble sequence, which they hyped in promotion for that film. So, I would say they didn't really put together a crew in solo. Yeah, I would agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> which is so funny because, you know, big shot games yeah. are putting together a crew. <laughs> yeah. Okay, so that one is our first full on fail. Mm-hmm. Okay, so number eight is the ensemble has interesting slash eclectic experience so i think that while the showing off the ensemble the ensemble sequence did not happen in solo i think we do have an eclectic group of skills i think that lando is definitely more interesting and eclectic than i think anyone would have thought right and so was l3 i don't think anyone really thought that l3 would be like she was so here's a quote from charles The execution of the score needs to be dependent upon the combination of a unique set of talents. Since the purpose of heists is to give us heroes who operate outside the conventions of society, the individuals on a standalone basis should definitely be experts and also a little wacky, eccentric, or off. I think L3 really uh, is the main main, uh, point here (laughs) of eclectic, off, wacky, because the way that they're able to pull off the heist is because of her interest in freeing the droids. And the droid breakout allows for a distraction. And without L3's interest in that, which is something completely new to Star Wars, something we had never seen before, and definitely one of my favorite, if not my favorite aspects of Solo. I love this sequence. Um, Did you guys know that Charlotte is interested in droid rights? <laughs> maybe you didn't know that. <laughs> but I really am. Okay. Anyway, I think that it's the only way that they would have been successful with the Pikes is because of L3. And if they didn't have her, then they wouldn't have been able to have to steal the coaxium. And then at the end of the day, you have another set of skills, right? You have Kira doing Terascasi, right? Which is a, like a completely specific set of skills from some game in like the early 90s, 80s. I don't remember. I wasn't alive. I don't know. And I <laughs> I just that is such a like a random inclusion in this movie that's definitely a little wink wink to the fans but it's it's definitely without a doubt a specialized skill to the point where l3 points it out right and she's like how'd you learn to do that what is that and then also we have chewy who is a specialized type of character who has brute strength is able to pull arms out of their sockets and everything right we have all these different characters who have specialized skills. And then we have Lando who's just chilling, sitting, recording a podcast, which is great. That's hey, its own that's, specialized. That is a special skill. It's a special skill. <laughs> <laughs> I... It's eclectic experience. <laughs> yeah. I I would almost say that, like, yes, you're right in everything you're saying. I don't think that Solo makes it interesting enough in the film. I think L3s is the most compelling and the most prominent and really feeds in to the missions and of course like Kira's does too but it's just 
Like we see her do it once. It's not like this goes back to, I think, the last convention of recruitment of the ensemble. They weren't like, we need Kira because of her fighting skill. We need Chewie because of his brute strength. Like all these people just kind of came together because they had to. So I don't think it's interesting because I think that with like Ocean's Eleven and with Galaxies, uh, Gal- I almost said Galaxy's Edge. Oh my God. Um, <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy. It's very clear what all of their roles are. They all have very individual roles in the film. And I don't think that Solo's ensemble has individual roles. I think it's clear that Beckett is trying to be the leader here, but I don't think he's a very good one. And I think this also goes into the fact that we lost half of our crew in the first heist and then replaced them with you know, Kira and Lando in the second half too. Like the ensemble changes. And they're not really given that, um, I guess, like that introduction into their skills and like what their role is going to be. Like, oh, you're going to be the tech guy. You're going to be the strength guy. You're going to be the distraction person. And I think that they do, like Kira does play that role when they're on um, Kessel. But like I said, I just, I don't think... I don't think Solo does a good job laying it out. Like a lot of the fun I think with heist films is watching the planning process and Solo doesn't really give us that. Okay, I'm going to push back on that because think about the first time we see L3 and the first time we see Lando. I think it's an amazing sequence, perfectly lit by Bradford Young, the low lighting, that natural, naturally lit set. It's amazing. It's beautiful. Um, but we see Lando... And that introduction to him is given to us by Kira because we're we're walking into this den, right, where they're playing, um, where they're playing Sabak, and the droids are fighting one on one. We see L three picking a fight, but we also see Lando winning, and we see Kira basically laying it on Han about why they need these two because they have the super fast ship. So to go back to the skills. The reason why they're able to be successful in the heist, yes, is because of all of them, but also it's because of uh, Lando's ship that they have. And I think that while I don't think they have the the cool sequence of gathering a crew, we do have a sequence of showing why they're important. And we even have Kira talking about how um, much history she has with Beckett and how the history of Beckett's escapades, including killing Aura Singh, um, will put them at an advantage. But is it good that the only thing that Lando is really bringing to the table is the Falcon? That's a good question. I don't know. Because I, I think don't that think he so. brings. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I think that he. I, I don't know. Because at the end of the day, Han makes the castle run, right? And they're able to get them out of the maw because Han is the one that's piloting. Yeah, but then what's Lando's skill that he's bringing to the table? Yeah, I don't know if it's necessarily a skill as much as it's an object, which is the Falcon. Yeah, which I don't, I don't know. And like to get it, we're not going to get into this, so just ignore that I said this. But like him bringing L three as an object too that comes with the Falcon. And then, yeah, problematic, problematic. You, yeah, very problematic. And then, like, I think that's one of the issues with Solo is then, like, you know, it's kind of harsh how she's placed into the Falcon itself. So it's really, like, it's not Lando's skill that they're after. It's his – it's the ship. And then, I mean, they don't know about L3. I don't think they do. Um, 
And then, like, Beckett doesn't have, like, a particularly – I guess he's, like, a good criminal, but <laughs> I don't think he – I don't know. I – yeah, I wouldn't – I wouldn't say that this passes. Okay. I, I don't – I don't know because – I just don't know because we're, we're given new characters – and in Star Wars, that does denote that they're important enough to be new and therefore have a certain set of skills. I don't but think every I, new character is important. <laughs> okay. Okay. I agree. I agree with you. I'm going to say I'm sorry. It, I I, like it, I'm it like... pains me to say this fails. That's why. <laughs> because I feel like I can make an argument for it and I have, but I agree with you at the end of the day. Well, that's... It does, it's not done as well as it could have been. I think that, like with Lando, for example, who we've been talking about, Lando doesn't. Within the heist film, Lando fails or is part of the failure of following this convention, right? But as a Star Wars film, it's amazing to see Lando doing Sabacc. Like, of course, that's what he's doing and, and gambling. And he's so good at that. And it's the fact that he doesn't actually partake in the heist on Kessel and he's just in the ship <laughs> recording a podcast – that's amazing. And like that's really great as for Star Wars, but within this structure, it doesn't lend itself to the heist film structure. Yeah. I agree. It's not it it our our convention 7 and 8, which are recruitment of ensemble sequence and the ensemble has an interesting eclectic experience, both fail and they're both kind of contingent on each other. Yeah. Yeah, I agreed. Number 9 is a collection of heist tools are scattered throughout the plot. So this is what Charles has to say. Perhaps most importantly, we need to witness skills and elements that we don't even realize will be part of the heist at all. Who would have guessed that when the Malloy brothers in Ocean's Eleven were screwing around racing souped-up toy cars during the recruitment sequence that we would even be using the skill in driving a decoy van via remote control during the finale? And I think this is so important. I love that detail from Ocean's Eleven. It's so fun. Um, But I think... It is really important because it's part of the element of surprise in the end that, oh, I've been looking at the keys to their success this entire time. And I don't know about you, Caitlin, but I would say that Solo passes this because while perhaps problematic, the tools of their success are is L3 and their ability to, you know, jump into hyperspace and do the kick and all those things, right? And her sacrifice is it has been scattered throughout the plot because she was a literal character and then she's become part of the ship. You know? What what is the tool at the end of the film? Is it Han himself? Is it is that does that count? Does it need to be something physical? I think you're totally right with L3, but that's like that's one that's like their second big heist or like sequence, I guess if it was. But then at the end, what what is it at the end? When you say the end, what do you mean? I mean, I like the whole last sequence with Dryden and Kira and Han and Beckett. I would also say it could possibly be, I don't know if tools even needs to be a, a physical thing yeah. when Kira even takes a, a sword that was part of Dryden's collection that we've been watching throughout the entire movie too, mm-hmm. um, that was her able to get out. And yeah. I think that uh kira herself can even be part of this tool for han's own escape even yeah because her you know choosing to um align with han in the end and kill dryden i think is something that 
we perhaps could have seen coming because we understand how Star Wars works and we are sympathetic for people and we want them to break free of their chains and everything. But at the end of the day, we didn't know if that was going to be possible because throughout the entire movie, she was no Dryden. She's literally branded, right? And the way that she gets out is, I don't know, I think part of the tool in the success of the heist. Yeah, and that she even has a physical ring that is used to call mall to her or the hologram so true i didn't think about that yeah i think this one is an interesting one i would probably say that it's again like a 75 percent kind of pass i do think it passes but i think it's it's one of those things where it passes but it's not quite it's not fully what we see in you know like oceans 11 the quote-unquote perfect heist film Mm mm-hmm yeah, I think that's fair. I do. Um, just because of the way that that's also perhaps part of the problem of Solo not having a recruitment sequence. Because mm-hmm. in, in that part of Ocean's Eleven, the quick shots that you see in the recruitment sequence definitely come to play an hour and a half later in the film, right? Yeah, and to exactly. the point where you, you're already living so much in the movie that you kind of forgot that that happened until it's happening and you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. I remember that detail about the character. Yeah. Yeah. So and- I – and I don't think that we actually get that with Solo, but at the same time we do, but it's deeper because it's Star Wars. <laughs> yeah. I think really the only thing we get that's really like an oh, yeah moment is with L3. The thing with, with Kira and like her physical ring – I don't I don't think that's like an oh yeah moment but it's like a oh yeah the uh, thing the thing that's really problematic and again I don't really want to get into it because we've talked about it on the show but the fact that L3 does become a tool for their success it che- it checks this box specifically because the, they're only successful because of L3 becoming part of the ship mm-hmm. um and that was a surprising moment and as an audience member, that surprise wasn't I, I don't there was really no catharsis in that surprise for me because I, I was depressed about it. And so many people were. It's not just me, right? And mm-hmm. I think that it wasn't handled with the reverence that it needed to needed to be. Um well for as much as they built up Lando and L3's relationship. Yeah, and perhaps that was the the problem here is that giving humanity to a droid and then her dying and then becoming part of the ship when her whole shtick was about um not becoming part of <laughs> a yeah. machine you know controlled. and i think that yeah not to be controlled and then only to be controlled in the end i think is is a weak point in the narrative it does not make sense thematically but at the same time i think that we can recognize that l3 is scattered into the plot and becomes a heist tool. Like she is. She's part of the heist tool. So I would say this passes. I think that's part of the the difference with Solo as opposed to other heist films is I think that Solo has very self-contained sequences. For me, it's a little like Solo as a whole is a little bit more choppy. And this goes back to our discussion of like, okay, so maybe Solo should have been mini a mini series, like episodic, uh, that might have served its its plot better because of something like L three. Her her piece of the story, her her use as a tool for the heist, is really kind of over, and it's not referenced ever again when they get to Savarine, and it's really kind of contained from when we meet her, which is a good chunk through the film, until she becomes a part of 
the Falcon. I just think it's an interesting kind of difference with Solo than we see in something like Ocean's Eleven. And you're right, like not having that kind of recruitment sequence with the ensemble where they would have time to close in on some of these details to do close-ups, like more close-ups of things like Kira's ring and stuff like that. Um, That kind of feeds into this convention. But yeah, I mean, it more or less passes. Like I said, I I would give it about a 75%. Still passes. 75 is still passing. <laughs> Charlotte just wants to pass solo like for everything. <laughs> so our next convention is the target is personified. Quote, the heist is more than merely a story about taking stuff. It's about standing up to something, justice and revenge. Good versus evil requires a villain. It's more fun to watch that than good versus insert neutral building containing a vault. Neutral building containing a vault. The interpersonal conflict in that movie exists, but it focuses on the relationship between the thieves themselves. Internal strife takes away from one of the main reasons we love heists, us against them. I think that Solo passes this. I think it could have done this a lot better in different ways, but I think it does pass it. I think it totally passes it. I think this movie is about interpersonal conflict, which is like why I don't think it passes some of the ones that we've talked about, because I think Mm -hmm. it perhaps leans so hard on interpersonal conflict that we understand at the end that Emphis Nest um, isn't the bad guy, but instead is is the good guy right and the bad guy is dryden in the in the empire and like that's what star wars is is realizing like it's so much bigger you know that oppression is still there and i think this movie does it i think the target is personified here they're not just stealing just for this the steal but it's dryden but it's also darth maul it's also it's so much bigger right it's the syndicates it's this constant loop you know yeah I think that the relationship that has always kind of disappointed me the most with Solo is Beckett and Han. I think it's the hardest one for me to crack. I think because I really think that they shouldn't have killed Val in this story. And if you go back and listen to our Solo episode from two years ago, I walked through this whole kind of alternate timeline of if – Val had just abandoned Beckett rather than dying if she had just walked away from the the train heist sequence I feel like it would have set up Beckett's conflict with Han being so willing to bring Kira in way better for me um because kind of similar kind of similar to like Ray and Ben like Ray doesn't we don't really see Ray taking time to grieve Ben and we don't really see that with Beckett and Val he mentions it but it's it's like it's so brief I I don't buy it I don't think it's well done I know you don't either but I think that like I think the conflict between the interpersonal conflict between Han and Kira is well laid out and done very well for me I don't think that Beckett and Hans is and I think that's just like a me thing I know a lot of people disagree with that and that's okay but I think that if Val had lived and abandoned Beckett, he would have been – he would have had so much more conflict with Han about bringing Kira in and it would have felt more real. Like if Han, if Val had abandoned them, Beckett would have been able to say like, you know, his whole tagline of like, don't tr- – like, you know, don't trust anyone. You would have been like, look, like Kira is going to abandon you just like Val did to me. Like we're the same here. And then the end of it, Han would be able to show like – 
no, we're not actually the same. I'm different from you. And this is how. The way that you would have written it would have been better, (laughs) in my opinion. (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah, it's – I think that for me it's hard to completely pass this because it's like I think that Han and Kira is so well done. But then for me, Beckett and Han isn't. And I think that for as much as like Chewie and Lando are – and Chewie in particular are big pieces in Han's life – there's not conflict between those two and there's conflict between Han and Lando, but it's more comedic at the end of the day. And it's not as big. Like Beckett and Kira are the main players in Han's life in this film. I think they're the main people that are kind of talking to him and influencing him in this film, I think. And one of them I think is really well done and the other not as well. So it passes. It passes. (laughs) Yeah, I would say that to go to Charles's words, it's the reason why we love heist is because it's us against them. Solo is us against them. It's yeah. this group against this group, you know, and we root for one group over the other. And that the groups, like there are two competing groups, right? There's Dryden and then there's Emphis Nest. And it becomes very clear who the target is right at the very end, you know, yeah. and it is us, both of those groups. It turns out if there's, you know, three, right? Two of them are against one, which is really cool, right? Yeah, definitely. So I would say it passes. You're right that it's complicated because everything is complicated. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so the next one is the cat is personified. Quote, the baseline expectation of a heist is that our heroes are trying to steal something. But a surprising number of films fail to take advantage of the key conflict, having an actual character try to stop them. Many heists simply fall back on a generic security element surrounding the cheese. This robs the story of an extremely delicious potential element. In our favorite, in Ocean's Eleven, this one casino owner, Terry Benedict, plays both the target and the cat, manning the security station of his casino throughout the movie. I'm not saying the cat has to be the same as the target, although it worked well well there, but the cat should definitely know that the mouse is coming. What do we think? I really like the cat metaphor, but it also kind of confuses me a little. (laughs) Well, it's a screenwriting thing too that has always confused me the whole kill the cat thing yeah but i think that if we can compare it to oceans 11 as it is said you know the cat and the target being the same i think dryden yeah is both of those but also i think the movie reveals that there's an even larger personification of a cat in darth maul at the very end mm-hmm. yeah yeah dryden does become both by the end i think what's great about the ending of solo is that it it does kind of switch from beckett and dryden too yeah i think that it's interesting because if we do define the whole hat the conflict of having an actual character try to stop them we even have the empire at one point trying to stop them when before they're about to go into the mall which if we want to you know get sort of non-technical it's almost to say that you know all the bad guys are the same and so they are trying to get away with someone or something, right? They're mm-hmm. they're trying to get away from the Imperials. They're trying to get away from um, the, the Pikes, who they just they stole so much from, right? Um, all these people are they're trying to get away from. But even the Pikes in this example are just the security, you know. But I think that Dryden, at the end of the day, is the cat who's trying to stop them from stealing and giving the coaxium to Emphis Nest and her group. Yeah, I would agree with you. Yeah, so I'd say this passes. 
So the next convention is iconic scenes. Charles writes, this convention is related to how the classics are marketed and remembered. It's an artistic scene within the context of a good story. There's no question that Solo, like Solo passes this completely. It's very aware of what they consider iconic and what they don't. (laughs) Yes. It's not even really worth spending time on, to be honest, because I think that Star Wars is so aware of itself. They spend... I mean, I think it's a two-minute sequence of showing off the Millennium Falcon with the Force theme that plays over it, right? <laughs> they said, I mean, you want iconic? We'll give it to you. Exactly. So, yes, passes 100% flying colors. <laughs> okay. So the next convention is a good enough B-plot. And this is what Charles has to say about this. He says, quote, or he writes, quote, So as we alluded to in a classic drama, the B-plot carries the theme. For example, again in Titanic, on its surface level, (laughs) he said sorry for the pun, is a story about a sinking ship. The B-plot of Rose and Leo carries the controlling idea of unconditional love indoors. That's what we go home remembering. Similarly, in Heat, we go home thinking about the link between Pacino and De Niro. But in a classic heist, the score is equivalent of a sinking ship. The A-plot is the thing we came to see. We want to see the magician in action. The B-plot does not have to make us cry. That said, the B-plot does still have to be good enough. Let's look at Logan Lucky. In this film, our hero, Jimmy Logan, sparks up a love interest with an old high school friend at around... 31%, but she ends up having nothing to do with the score or any of the side plots. Now, I don't think she should have been eliminated from the script because it would have been nice if a little romance was tied in with the heist. It gives the story that extra dive that has us rooting for the hero for reasons beyond merely getting away with the cash. So what is the B-plot of Solo? The B-plot 100% is Kira's relationship with Dryden. And I think it is just as interesting, if not more interesting than the A-plot, but that's just me. Yeah, I would say that Kira is the B-plot altogether, like with Han and with Dryden and with Maul. Yeah, and as we've said, if the convention is a good enough B-plot that keeps us caring, we wouldn't feel anything at the end about Kira leaving if it wasn't good enough. Yeah, I think we've spent this whole episode just being, you know, 10 for 10 on Kira. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. (laughs) I think think the takeaway from this whole episode is that Kira needs more content. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's really interesting because I think Solo as a script is very aware that Kira is the B-plot. And I think it is also very aware that they're leaving so many things under the surface. Mm -hmm. Um, And something that's so interesting, I mean, we've talked about this before, but the subtext of Kira being uh, sex slave is like a, a rough word to use. But I think that it's perhaps apt in this scenario of uh with kira and i think that that's that's really the subtext really is that she's branded she's owned she's the the right hand girl um to dryden is really gross and it's to a point where i think that it's interesting enough because you want to see her break free so at the end when she does sort of break free kill dryden and gain his spot you're cheering for her but you're sad for Han, but it, but you're happy for Kira. And and you're also delighted as a fantasy Darth Maul. So yeah. it's, it is super interesting. But then I think you're also kind of wary of what Kira is getting herself into now. Yes, because she'll never be fully free. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I suppose if she, you know, once Maul catches up with Ben Kenobi, <laughs> then I guess she will be. <laughs> Yeah, that's true. But you never know what will happen in between them. 
Yeah, no, exactly. It's – yeah, I think that's – you know, for – you know, talking about heist movies as such, you know, a fun adventure and how that that kind of entertainment is really valuable. I think there's something so dark and subtle about Kira that I think a lot of us w- were really surprised at. It felt really unexpected to have this kind of really dark subtext surrounding this character. And, you know, as it's been clear, she's one of if not the best part of this movie for us. Yeah, absolutely. But yes, this passes. Kira being the B-plot, it's very much good enough. (laughs) Okay, so the next one is number 14, is a clever, interesting heist sequence. Quote, cleverness is valued over gall, magicians over daredevils. Something that leaves you feeling like, how did they even think of that? Does Solo have those moments? Mm. Oh, come on, Caitlin. It totally does. (laughs) How did they even think about that is what happens when the tables are turned. But all of the sequences, that's the thing. In the episode of Dryden at the end, yes. With Kessel and with um, the, the train sequence, I don't think so. No, but the train sequence should not be really counted as part of this because. But it's not I even think, it's not even magical. There's nothing clever about that. They just yeah, like it's brute. They're being daredevils. I would say that. the whole Pike sequence though on Kessel is clever because I would have never thought yeah. that the droids learning sentience would be their key to creating a distraction and leaving. But that wasn't planned. Eh, it wasn't planned, but it was. You know. In the end of the day, L3's mission and goal and purpose. You know, she says, like, I found my life's purpose, yeah. you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, L3, I think, went in, you know, if she ever saw a droid, she was going to, that was going to be her plan. But it certainly wasn't a necessary linchpin for, it was a linchpin. It wasn't planned in the setup for them. I can't believe you're saying that this isn't a clever, interesting heist sequence. It totally is. The double crossing. It's so good. With Kira? Yeah. Yes. I think it passes. It builds. Let me say Let me say this. It builds up. I think that the first sequence is not at all magical. I don't think it's clever. The second one, we're gaining a little bit more steam. We've got L3 who throws in the wrench kind of literally. That was not at all a part of the buildup or anything that was in their plan. I think this goes back to the fact that there isn't there's not an ensemble sequence and there's not a sequence of them planning out what they're going to do, right? Yeah. Um I think that's where this comes in. So I guess it passes, but it get it gets better over time, I guess is what I'm saying. And yeah, of course the first one is going to be a failure because it's the failed heist and they've got to like it's almost like their practice run <laughs> for what they're gearing up towards, but I don't think they tried to be creative and then it failed um Mm. and it's not like yeah so i think it gets better over time and like yeah the ending of course like i've the ending of solo is it it hits all the points i think in these (laughs) in these uh conventions but that's the thing about solo is that it it feels more episodic and so it's chunkier and where it passes pretty much with all flying colors in the last quote-unquote episode, I don't think it does as well in episodes one and two. Yeah, I think that's fair. I still think it ends in a clever, interesting heist sequence, though. Yes, it ends in a clever and interesting one. Yeah. The Kessel heist is fun, and it's interesting, and it keeps you compelled, though. So I I don't know. 
I think that it's like two out of three for me. I would give it 1.75. Okay. Out of three. That's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's just funny. You're very judicious. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's because it's like with the Castle Run, it's you're right. It is, it is very entertaining and Kira is really fun in it. Han and Chewie, that whole thing going on. I think that Lan- the sequence of Lando actually coming out of the Falcon and going back for L3 is incredible. But then I'm I'm like sad because of where it ends with L3, you know? Yeah. But it's still successful. They pushed out all that coaxium and they yeah, got I guess help from, from the Wookiees, which At is surprising. <laughs> yeah. Some might call that clever and interesting. I'm just saying. Yeah, some might. And I did. So I'm passing it. <laughs> so it's clever that they put L3 into the Falcon? I mean, I think... In order to escape? Because like you said, she's the tool for how they escape. So that's I the know. clever thing that led them to their escape. And I agree. I think that it is conceptually, it makes sense, but it's muddled by the fact that L3 is a droid's rights, droid's rights activist. I think that that's, unless she like said something about make me part of the ship so I'm forever with you, I think it's different because there's yeah. no free will there. And I think it's muddled, but it is clever. You can't you can't deny the fact that when you watch Empire Strikes Back and you see that panel in the back that is supposed to be L3, that's clever. They added that in there, you know? And I think that it's whether it's good writing, whether it's successfully done, I think is to be debated, but it is clever. It's something that someone thought of that works on some level. Yes, I agree with you there. Okay, so number 15 is the characters we love and who steal from the ones we don't. And there's this quote from Danny Ocean from Ocean's Eleven, the favorite heist movie, <laughs> that is, don't hurt anybody. Don't steal from anyone who doesn't deserve it and play the, gl- the game like you've got nothing to lose. Really good quote because I think this really applies to so many heists and really applies to character-driven heists, including Solo, I think. Specifically, I think that this is really Han's mantra. If we can compare, I don't know if we can do this, but Danny Ocean to Han. This quote is, you know, I can hear Han say, like, don't hurt anybody, don't steal from anyone who doesn't deserve it and play the game like you've got nothing to lose. Like, I can hear him saying that, you know. Um, But at the same time, to go back to even our previous conversation about Han, like perhaps being like wanting to steal at the end and to continue to be a thief, it's a little muddled. What do you think about this? Yeah, I think that kind of like what you've said is what I thought about it too. I think Han is trying to become Danny Ocean or (laughs) he's learning how to be Danny Ocean. It's strange because if he's headed to Tatooine next, how long is he in this kind of place in life before he meets Leia and Luke? But yeah, I think that he's trying to become this person. He wants to be this cool in Solo. (laughs) Yeah. And yeah, we love the characters. It's no doubt. You know, Mm -hmm. if the convention is characters we love and the characters that steal from the ones we don't, this passes because we love Han Solo. We went into this movie loving Han Solo. Obviously, we love Kira. Obviously, we love Lando and Chewbacca, right? And L3. So we root for the success of them because, but at the same time, it's like we want them to run away with the money rather than to give it over for some job, you know? Mm Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think there's any denying that we love Han Solo, right? Yes. And we want – the thing is, is at the end, Han Solo makes a choice to give 
to steal from the bad guys on Kessel and not give it to the bad guys, but instead give it to the good guys. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what's great, too, is that he doesn't join Envis either. Yeah. It's very Han. At this it is very Han. Life. Yeah. So then the last convention is number 16, which is part of the plan is hidden from the audience. So it leaves you wondering what's the trick and how they do that. And I think we've said it a million times, but the last sequence absolutely fulfills that. And the piece of it that we haven't discussed really is Enfys. The Enfys reveal, not just like who she is, but at the end when all of Dryden's men realize that Enfys isn't actually there. Or rather that she's there, but she's surprising them by coming up from behind. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I think even just to take a step further back, I think we go throughout the entire movie. The first time you watch it, you're like, who is Enfys Nest? And why is, you know, so we have two competing, you know, we have, we're working for Dryden, but we also have people who are trying to steal the loot, right? So we have this competing group that's trying to steal from us who, while we're stealing. So it's a pirate gang, right? The, the Cloud Riders. And the reveal, Emphis and her Cloud Riders are people who've been cast aside by Crimson Dawn. Um, they... They are actually the good guys. So I think this this whole that is part of the the trick, if you will. How'd they do it? Um, I think that this is like this is part of the twist. And um, you're right about the the whole like hiding. I don't know. I can't get any word out, Caitlin. I've like lost it completely. <laughs> the just the reveal, the twist at the end of where. You know, all of his men are looking at who they think is Emphis, and it's not really Emphis. And she comes from, it's not behind, it's above. She comes from above <laughs> with all of her warriors. With her cool staff that just yeah. like putting into the ground. She really rocks it. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because you have to think like, okay, so th that plan, was it hidden from the audience and then Han and Emphis kind of bargained together about it? <laughs> I love that. They were like, okay, so we're going to do this and you're going to do this. And we're going to reveal it and it's all going to be at the same time. And the best part about that sequence, I think, time. is Dryden being like, Eamon, Eamon, what's happening? Eamon is <laughs> like freaking out. And that's just so great. And I, I, I've always loved Dryden Voss, I think, as a villain. You guys know this. I've mentioned this a couple times. But I love how dramatic he is. Mm -hmm. And in that moment when he's like panicking, I don't think we've ever seen a villain panic really like that before. When he realizes that, you know, he's been double crossed, even though he thought he was ahead of the game with Beckett, um, you know, assume everyone will betray you. Uh, and then the the fact that Han is able to even stay ahead of that comet and to take that comet from earlier in the film to heart and, and play into Beckett's tendencies is really smart and really proves Han as a character, at least to me, um, as a competent thief and a competent uh, person who can get a job done, really. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. I've never loved how Han kills Beckett. Again, this is like my complicated feelings about the Beckett and Han relationship. I know Charlotte disagrees with that, and that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> I just feel like it, it's, it makes sense. Like, he has to die. I don't. Or else, because he was going to kill him. He was going to kill him. At that moment, he was going to kill him. We've talked about this so much. I, th I think he has to die. I just don't think Han should have killed him. Yeah. I don't think Han should have been the one to do it, Yeah, is what I'm saying. Maybe Dryden should have killed him. Maybe. I mean, I love, I love, I like the standoff. 
I, I do just, too. And I like the I like the walking with the coaxium and Chewbacca walking with it through the desert. There's something yeah. that's really slow and moving about that that is like, like he's oh, not in a rush. It's not even in a rush because I think you, you're not allowed to be in a rush when you're handling explosive coaxium. <laughs> There's something that's so like soft about the way that people have to carry coaxium that I think makes the tension very high because it's explosive, right? Yeah. Um, and I've always liked that sequence, though, of the circle cam, really, of um, Beckett and Chewie walking across the desert with the actual coaxium to bring Emphis. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do, too. I, I like the sequence. I like their conversation, too. You know, it's going to go and play the Valachord. I think it's I think it's a good sequence, except for the end. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but yeah, so uh, Solo passes this convention as well. Okay, so how many conventions did th- did we pass? So there are 16. Okay, so we have 12 that we passed. So four that we didn't pass. Yeah, so four we didn't pass, which means I think that <laughs> 12 out of 16 is pretty decent. It's really good. Um, it's not... Ocean's Eleven perfect heist film, but I think that on the onslaught we knew that it wouldn't be because of our discussion about genre in Star Wars. Mm-hmm. It's not going to be a, a Star Wars, because it isn't, or else we would have already talked about it, not two years later, right? We would have yeah. talked about how Star Wars came out with a heist movie. But at the end of the day, they did follow a lot of these conventions, and a lot of these conventions are not just part of what makes a successful heist film, but also what makes a successful action film. And I think those things are are pretty similar in a weird way. I think that Han Solo's first story was always going to be a job, a heist, something, something like this, right? Mm-hmm. I don't know. What did you, th- what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I think it was good to go through all of these. It's funny because the ones that we kind of really failed were the ones about the ensemble, ones which are which are such a big part of heist films the fact that they're only kind of two conventions in this list is kind of interesting i think because i think that those are incredibly important for a heist film and those are the specific ones that we failed so yeah i think it it is a heist movie <laughs> but it's weird that i think it's kind of this big piece of a heist movie that it did fail in but Part of that goes back to the genre of Star Wars and and what this film was doing for Han specifically at this juncture of his life. And the fact that he is, he doesn't exist just in this film. We know so much about him and we discussed this at the top of the show. So is it bad for the film necessarily that it doesn't have a great ensemble? Yes and no. Is it, is it bad for, like, Han's character? No. Is it bad for it as a heist film? Yes. Does that make it a bad film overall? No. Here's the ironic thing. Do we like ensemble casts in general in Star Wars? <laughs> Do we? I don't know if Star Wars has done it very well, to be honest. I think that's that's the thing. Yeah. So instead of – and that's our opinion generally on – ensemble casts and Star Wars are too many characters, really. The idea is that sometimes Star Wars has too many characters and we're not going to focus on enough. Mm-hmm. And I think that what Solo does exceed in is we are pretty focused on Han. And yeah. so sure, we failed the ensemble parts that are part of the 
you know, putting together a crew sequence of a heist that are so fun and everything. But we also get to spend time with Han and we also get introduced to a new character, Kira, and we spend a significant amount of time with them. Right. And, and Chewie too. Chewie is a huge part of this movie. And I think that it's, we're able to spend time with a smaller amount of characters than we do in say the rise of Skywalker that tries to focus on many different characters to honestly not a great job because we don't focus enough on, enough characters right like enough characters don't have enough screen time to flesh out their stories to completion Mm -hmm. and with solo instead we we have we're able to focus on han solo the titular character right oh i think that this goes back to charles's kind of main point is that a heist film should be more about the how than the why and star wars is all about the why And in order to explore the why, you have to go deeply. You should go deeply. And when Star Wars is successful, it does go deeply for fewer characters. You know what I was just thinking about? I don't. Mandalorian had a great heist episode. (laughs) Yeah. That was really about the how versus the why. Mm Mm-hmm. And that why never really got revealed until later for The Mandalorian, to much much to your uh, frustration. I think in, in that episode, you were like, why are we spending time in this part when I just want to see The Mandalorian come to his senses about his understanding with, like, fatherhood of baby Yoda, right? And yeah. <laughs> instead, we had a whole heist episode of The Mandalorian that in some places feels out of place in in the first season but in the end it shows what the mandalorian was able to risk but it does have an ensemble situation it has all these these components and it is super fun but it exists in an episodic format that i think is really successful yeah i yeah and i think that that was kind of my critique of the mandalorian as a whole (laughs) but i think that that episode of the mandalorian is good i do like that episode of the mandalorian and you're right. It's because I think I think it, it does the ensemble thing better than Solo does. Yeah, because it's a it's aware of the fact that it's putting together a crew that we're only really going to see in this episode, perhaps. You yeah, know? yeah. And so it, it spends time doing that. I think it would actually be interesting to go through this with the Mandalorian with that one episode. Of yeah, the tell us if you'd be interested in that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, because I think that it probably follows it more to a T than Solo does. Like some of these conventions were like, oh, it kind of does. It kind of like 75%, 1.75 if you're mm-hmm. me. <laughs> I think that maybe that does it better. But yeah, because it's episodic and like being able to look at the Mandalorian season as a whole now, those things that I didn't get for characterization in that episode were able to come out in some other places in the show. And this isn't about the Mandalorian, but <laughs> I, yeah, I think that Solo is a very interesting heist film because it's not self-contained and, and like because it's more about it focuses a lot on the why with Han rather than the how, which is it, it almost feels like that's the foundation for a heist film. So if Solo doesn't pass that foundation, is it still a good heist film? I know it's confusing because then the next question is, does it even matter? Or is it just fun that it uses these kind of conventions in its script, in its storytelling, in its way so that we recognize this, this these fun elements, you know, because yeah. 
could could solo too if they ever made such a thing be a completely different genre than heist i think it could and it would be really interesting if it if it was you know mm-hmm. or or would it be more of a heist than this one was you know and i think both of those would make sense it's just interesting that Star Wars decided to lean hard into the heist storytelling. I think it's very clear. When you pass 12 out of the 16, they they're they're doing it. They're they're leaning hard into trying to make it like an Oceans movie. And it makes me think like what was the was was the original script perhaps in Solo before we got Ron Howard more heisty? Was it more fun? You know that people talk about how it was before Ron Howard came on and kind of uh, straightened the ship, which I think was right and and good. But were they really experimenting with different ways to push this genre? To you know, we've talked about this a lot also on our show, but. When Disney bought Star Wars and was it bought Lucasfilm and was really deciding to push out new movies, there was all this talk about how they were going to be exploring all these different genres. And would we ever see something like a rom-com Star Wars? And would we see a heist movie? And would we see a Western? And would we see a comedy? I remember Solo was so talked about being a comedy. Remember how like wrong that felt? That felt wrong. I'm I I feel like solo should have never been a comedy because i don't really think han han solo as a character is i think he's he's a funny guy but he's funny in in the parameters of star wars he's sarcastic but he's not comedic you know mm-hmm. and i i remember all that talk and i was always going along with it and i almost think you can even kind of probably listen to our super early episodes actually don't do that but (laughs) um about when we were talking about the speculation of solo potentially being a comedy but when the directors changed i think and we saw the trailers i mean teasers it really felt more gritty it felt more western it felt more heisty i'm really happy that they went with this it it is more in line i think with what star wars is as an action piece um but it's interesting the fact that we haven't necessarily seen lucasfilm um, create films and TV shows and stuff that are pretty genre specific. It's still they're still going hard and head first into the amalgamation of genre. It kind of makes me wonder if the Lord and Miller version of this film was focused on the how more, and yeah. they're what like you know Lucasfilm was looking at this and going, well, this is Han Solo. It's got to have more why. Right. I can and totally see that. I can 100% see that. And what's funny is I remember talking when this film was coming out of like, is Han Solo the – like Han Solo is so iconic. Like it's got to be so hard to make a film about Han Solo that isn't Harrison Ford. Is this – I remember talking like, is this the best <laughs> – place to like bring Han Solo (laughs) to do something that when we were thinking it was a comedy like that genre specific is it good to like do that with Han Solo for as important as he is to the Star Wars universe it yeah it kind of I can totally see that situation of Lord and Miller were making almost like a by the books heist film or comedy or something and it was like well no this is this is Han Solo. There's got to be more of that why piece for it. And so while maybe it doesn't have the strongest heist foundation, even though it passes a lot of the heist conventions, it's still a really strong Star Wars movie. Yeah, because it has to feed into the themes of love and friendship and 
has to feel personal. Like, I think heist movies do feel personal, but there's a certain personalness that has to happen in Star Wars. It has to be pretty character focused, it has to reflect the themes of the other, the other stories in order to be self-referential. And I think that we can we're able to watch solo and bring some ideas of um, breaking free about freedom, about companionship and everything and apply them to movies that were coming out around the same time, like the sequel trilogy. And that's what I think that they were going for at the studio. Right. I think they they were hoping for something that felt more in line with the, the rest of the body of Star Wars work that was coming out at the time. I think, though, that we're such we're such needy fans and that I think we really want something that is super genre led like we yeah. want just like a really like a rom-com or a political thriller or like a mystery like we want we want like a knives out for star wars <laughs> we totally do that doesn't necessarily have to be and i i know that I, i'm saying this like it doesn't necessarily have to be tied to the like why of star wars right and i know that when that happens i'll probably critique that <laughs> when it comes out <laughs> but i think there is like there is value in just using these genres really almost in a cliche manner in the Star Wars universe. It would be really fun to see how a mystery, like what what is what is a a mystery house like the one in Knives Out? What does that even look like in Solo? Like to have a or in Star Wars to have a film in Star Wars that takes place pretty much in one setting for the entire time be crazy. <laughs> I like it's really hard to even picture it. <laughs> I know because Star it, Wars is four planets and five action sequ- sequences and a yeah. surprising ending. You yeah. Know? So when you were talking at the very top end of the show about like Star Wars, for as much as we love like the character and mythology of Star Wars, it is also action sequences and like we need that for it to feel Star Wars. But I, I want to see a film not in a way use these Star Wars conventions and can it still be Star Wars? Yeah, give me the perfect heist. <laughs> give me the the mystery. Yeah. Give me the rom-com. I want it. And I think that we've seen or we see at least um certain filmmakers experimenting on Disney Plus with different genres. Like I'm so excited for that Vision and Wanda show that's coming mm-hmm. on from Marvel and I feel like that's even experimenting with genres and kind of poking fun at things and getting kooky and I feel like Star Wars needs that because in a way the underlying tone of what you're saying is that they didn't lean hard enough into um a concept but instead tried to but but they they couldn't have because it's Han I know that's the thing and that's that's I think the problem with focusing on a character like Han yeah but overall I think this movie it's so fun to look at things through the lens of a heist because at the end of the day Solo does have three separate heists really did that culminate into one and does it do it successfully i i think so i mean it's a good movie and it's fun to watch and it's a fun if if it's fun to watch just like it's fun to watch oceans 11 you know at the end of it you're like yes they did that i can't believe they did that i feel the same way about solo yeah i think i do too especially now yeah it is fun have a good time with it and i yeah i'm looking forward to watching it again yeah, me too. It'll probably be sooner than <laughs> than Other. some people might think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, congrats, Solo. <laughs> <laughs> just take me back to 2018, man. I just want to go back. <laughs> Please take me back to 2018. <laughs> Alas, we are in 2020. <laughs> <laughs> but 
this conversation could only happen in 2020s. So there is that, I suppose. That's true. <laughs> well, is there anything else that we want to say about Solo, the heist film? I do want to say just please check out Charles's blog and his posts because they are fascinating. And if mm-hmm. you have any passing interest in heist movies, if you made it this far, I'm guessing you've seen some of them or you know how fun they can be. And looking at this list is is really cool. And I I love when people are able to break down things and storytelling. And it's, that's no surprise given our podcast. But I think this is a really cool, cool entry into film analysis. Yeah, it was really fun. Uh, I'm glad we finally got to record this episode. It's literally been a long time coming. <laughs> yeah, it really has. Yeah, it was really fun to go through. Um, this also, we don't usually do like lists a lot of the time either. So it was, this was a good episode. I hope you, I hope you all enjoyed it. <laughs> and what are your thoughts? Would you have passed or failed things that we didn't? You should let us know. <laughs> you should. You, you should really let us should. know specifically online and here are all the places you can find us <laughs> did you like that lead in <laughs> did you yes i really okay. did <laughs> <laughs> i need constant affirmation <laughs> so do i so thank you so, you can find us online the podcast is on twitter at sky talkers pod or my personal handle is at caitlin plusher charlotte's is at clarity we also have our website skytalkers.com our email instagram and facebook you can find us at all of those places and uh, if you haven't left us a review on itunes if you want to take just a moment you can even press pause on this recording go leave us a review. It really helps other people find our show, which we would appreciate. And we love meeting new people on the internet. So if you could do that, if you haven't already, we would be very, very grateful. And if you're interested in other ways to support us, you can also head on over to our Patreon and check out some of our reward tiers there. Yes. And I want to say a huge thank you to our amazing patrons, Bethany, Joey, Jason, Neil, Suara, Jim, Amy, Joey, Diana, Susanna, Cherie, Courtney, Becca, Katie, Sarah, Z, BJ, and Kyle. Thank you guys so much for supporting us. Your support means the world. Yes. Thank you guys so much. And as always, until next time, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Sky Talkers is a member of the Star Wars Escape Pods Network. Explore more great content and get to know our sister shows at WeAreEscapePods.com and on Twitter at WeAreEscapePods, the Star Wars Escape Pods Network, promoting positivity in fandom.